Welcome to Potomac Hills. I'm glad you found us once again. We're working through the Gospel of Mark. This is our 33rd week in this amazing Gospel. Gospel of Mark was written by a man named John Mark, a follower of Christ and a protege of the Apostle Peter. He brings us the earliest eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. So I'm glad you've joined us this morning. I hope you find it worthwhile. Before I start, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We'll be at the very end of the chapter. And listen carefully as I read our scripture for today. Mark 10, verses 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about Jesus. And so we ask this morning to, that you would simply help us see Jesus. Help us consider what it means to follow Jesus. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I don't know if you've ever read the book, Peace Like a River. It's the award-winning novel by Leif Enger. And it tells the story of a man named Jeremiah Land. Jeremiah is a janitor for the local school, and he's been known to perform miracles from time to time. He lives a relatively quiet life with his three children, 16-year-old Davy, 11-year-old Reuben, and 9-year-old Swede, who's a precocious little girl. The novel takes a dark turn when Davy kills two teenage thugs who've invaded the family home. And it wasn't long before the whole community turns on the lands, especially the school superintendent, Jeremiah's boss a man named Chester Holgren. Now, Mr. Holgren is a nasty man with a diseased face. And young Reuben, who narrates the story, describes Mr. Holgren as a man whose face was a minefield of red boils. He adds, I hated him, I'll admit, and would soon hate him more. But a person had to feel sorry about this face. I don't know if you've ever tried a dish called tomato pudding. It's cooked soft and is ever so red and lumpy. Mr. Holgren does whatever he can to make Jeremiah's life miserable. 
eventually firing Jeremiah for false accusations of drunkenness. The firing takes place in the school cafeteria in front of all the children. Here's how Reuben describes the scene. He says, I left my milling classmates and headed for Dad, where he stood in rapt surprise facing Holgren. I hadn't in mind to say anything, and indeed I didn't, for as I approached, Dad lifted his hand, sudden as a wind shift, touched Holgren's face and pulled away. It was the oddest little slap you ever saw. Holgren quailed back a step, hunching defensively, but Dad turned and walked off. The superintendent stood with his fingers strangely a wonder over his chin, cheeks, and forehead. And then I saw that his bedeviled complexion, that face set always at a rolling boil, had suddenly changed. I saw instead skin of a healthy tan, a hale blush spread over cheekbones that suddenly held definition. Above his eyes, the shine of constant seepage had vanished and light lay at rest upon his brow. Listen, there are easier things than witnessing a miracle of God. For his part, Mr. Holgren didn't know what to make of it. He looked horrified. The new peace in his hide didn't sink deep. He covered his face from view and slunk from the cafeteria. I knew what had happened, though. I knew exactly what to make of it, and it made me mad enough to spit. What business had Dad in healing that man? What right had Holgren to cross paths with the great God Almighty? Now, as you know, the story of Jeremiah Land and Chester Holgren is fiction. But it raises two key questions about our text today. The story of the healing of a blind man. First, what business does Jesus have in healing this man? And second, what right does this man have to cross paths with the grace of God? Of course, Christian mercy is always a miracle of sorts. It's actually, it's two miracles. It takes a miracle of God to show that mercy, and it's a miracle to be touched by that mercy. And we're going to see both miracles in today's passage. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10, again starting at verse 46, and this story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Before we jump into the story, let's take a step back and see where we're at and look at the biblical context. The setting for this passage is fascinating. Right before this passage, we have the story of the rich young ruler who doesn't get it. Then we see Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection to the disciples for the third time. And in the parallel passage in Luke, we read Luke 18, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And then we have the story of James and John asking to sit at Jesus' side, one on his right and one on his left, seeking after greatness when they're all in glory. And they obviously don't get it. Our passage is immediately followed by the triumphal entry, which we looked at back on Palm Sunday. And there we saw the crowds hail Jesus as a conquering king seven short days before another crowd would cry out for his crucifixion. Neither crowd gets it. And then he cleanses the temple, so it'll be a house of prayer. And because of that, the priests and the scribes seek to destroy him. They aren't getting it either. So this story of Christ's healing of blind Bartimaeus stands in 
dramatic contrast to the incomprehension of the disciples, the priests, the scribes, the rich young ruler, and the crowds. Now, if you joined us last Thursday for our all-church night of prayer, and if you looked at the confession section of that prayer, it was all built on Mark 10 and on all those people who don't get it. Their spiritual blindness is rebuked by the sight of the blind beggar. And the story reveals the beginning of this blind man's faith, and it's a treasure for all who would see. Blind Bartimaeus, despite his poverty, his brokenness, his sorrow, receives riches, wholeness, and joy because he puts his faith in Christ and follows him. That's the context for this passage. Some folks can see everything happening right before their eyes, but they're spiritually blind, so they don't get it. Other folks who can't see anything at all immediately get it, so their eyes are open both physically and spiritually. So let's dive in and look at this wonderful text. It's shortened to the point, starting by seeing that Bartimaeus recognizes that he's faced with a key opportunity a key opportunity. If you're using the sermon outline, that will be the first blank uh, in it. Starting at verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, if you read the parallel account in Luke 18, you'll notice an apparent discrepancy. In Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus was entering the city of Jericho when he meets the blind beggar. In Mark, however, it says he's leaving the city. And it seems like a contradiction until you remember that the ancient city of Jericho was in ruins about a half a mile down the road from the new city of Jericho. And somewhere between the two, outside of the old city and before the new city, sits Bartimaeus. He's blind, which means because of the harshness of the times, he's reduced to begging. It's the only way he can support himself and make ends meet. He's asking for charity. There are pilgrims at this time heading into Jerusalem, and they go through Jericho. Passover is about to take place. And so there's many people traveling this road. And Bartimaeus has placed himself on the main route into the city in order to receive their charity. And now Jesus is approaching, accompanied by his disciples, and we're told a great crowd, uh, other pilgrims who are making their way up to Jerusalem for Passover. Now it's customary for a distinguished rabbi to travel with an entourage and to teach as they walked. So Jesus passing through with the disciples and the crowd isn't all that unusual. Going through Jericho compounds the crowding because the city's full of priests. That's where most of the priests and Levites lived, and they were waiting to make the day's journey up to the temple in Jerusalem. And virtually everyone's heard of Jesus, and they wanted to see him. So everybody's sort of gathering around. But some want to see him more than the rest. And the name of one of those men, Mark tells us, is Bartimaeus. Put yourself in his shoes. His day had begun like any other day. 
Waking up, he shook the straw from his shabby torn garment, stretched, got to his feet, and began tapping his way uh, along the familiar turns leading to the main gate of Jericho. Perhaps he was able to beg a crust of bread or two at some familiar stops along the way. And arriving at the gate, he takes his regular place with the other beggars, where they drew their cloaks tightly around him because the sun had not yet dispelled the morning chill. And like the litter that collects in the gutter, they sit there day in, day out, crumpled up men on the side of the road. Their friends are the discards that life in its hurry has left behind. Used up, thrown away people, living in their own separate place, living in their own separate pain. Each has a story to tell, but it's a story that nobody wants to hear. And they sit there and they cry out for a, a touch, a kind word, a little bit of conversation, but the world passes by on the road to somewhere else. And feeling around in the dark, Bartimaeus accosts a passerby with his searching hands, alms, alms for the poor, take pity on a poor blind man. And that's how he gropes for his daily bread. A mumbled prayer, a coin from a reluctant benefactor, a sharp point of theology from the religious, a brusque shove to the side of the road. And they sit there, like so many days before, and they listen to the city come to life. First a donkey loaded with melons for the market. After that, several women chatting as they bore pitchers towards the well, then the clomp of camel's hooves. And soon Jericho is flourishing with the sounds of life, and the blind men are chanting their beggar's cry. This is what life is like for Bartimaeus. For him, the road past the city gate is a dark stream where currents of voices rush by. He hears conversations coming down the street, but as the people get close, they hush, quicken their pace, scoot past, and they're gone. But he tenses and lifts his head because his blind, sensitive ears hear the hubbub of a great crowd approaching. First come the young boys running ahead with shrill cries, then more people hurrying past the gate talking excitedly. And Bartimaeus, brushed by the robe of someone walking by, reaches out and asks what's happening. And the passerby, pulling away, calls back. Luke tells us, Luke 18, 37, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He knows that name. He's heard of this man. Some say he's the one the prophet Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. At the beginning of Luke, Jesus quoted from Isaiah to announce his ministry, Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he's already told the disciples of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
So the word is out about Jesus and his healing and his miracles. And Bartimaeus has likely heard accounts from others who have heard Jesus, who have seen Jesus, or maybe even experienced his power firsthand. Messianic speculation is high among the Jews in the first century. Perhaps he'd heard that sometimes Jesus is called the son of David. He has the right bloodline. He's from the tribe of Judah. And Bartimaeus recognizes that there's an opportunity here, one for which he hadn't been looking and wasn't expecting. This is where he always sat. He wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus is coming to him. And so as this opportunity presents itself, Bartimaeus obviously knows something about Jesus. He's heard of his miracles. Perhaps he knows something of his message. And so he takes a chance. With amazing sight, Bartimaeus realizes that Jesus must be the Messiah. The crowd is passing. Jesus would soon be gone. He has to do something. This is a one-time opportunity. I must find him, he says softly. I must talk to this Jesus. And so he does. And he makes a key request. A key request. We're going to read verse 47 again. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You can see the difference between Bartimaeus and the crowd. He is desperate. He's frantic. To the crowd, this seems more like entertainment. It's a sight to see, something to talk about later. He's crying out pitifully, begging at the top of his lungs. It's impossible for him to push through the crowd, but he makes himself heard. Now, if we turn down the volume for a moment and we reflect on what's implied in Bartimaeus' conduct, we can see why his cries got him everything. They're full of blind sight. He has blind sight about his condition. He knew he was blind. He knew he was in darkness. Bartimaeus may have passed from the darkness of his mother's womb into the darkness of a sightless world. And if that's true, we don't know for sure. But if so, he'd never seen a tree wave its branches in the spring or the blue of a summer sky or the face of his mother or anyone else who loved him. There was no sight in his darkened eyes. He knew there's no hope for him short of a miracle. And there's only one thing worse than that kind of blindness, and that's not knowing that you're blind. Multitudes are blind to their darkness, blind to their sin, blind to their destiny, blind to their hopelessness, spiritually out of touch. Now, human reasoning would say that every time a person sins, that he or she will see more of his or her sin. But actually, the opposite is true. Every time someone sins, he makes himself more blind, less capable of realizing what sin is, less likely of realizing that he or she is a sinner. For unforgiven sinners, darkness and light are the same. Blindness makes it impossible to see. So what grace it is to see reality, even when what we see is unpleasant or grotesque, because When we see what we are, when we can't escape the truth, when we're surrounded by darkness and we know it, we'll begin to ask for the light. 
Bartimaeus' cry, Son of David, have mercy on me, comes from this profound understanding of himself and his blindness, and it brings grace to his soul. Christ loves to engage such reality. Second, Bartimaeus has blind sight about Jesus. He voiced a penetrating insight as to who Jesus is, and he keeps repeating, much to everyone's dismay, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now that title, Son of David, is not geographical, but theological. It's a blatant messianic declaration. It's the first time this title is used in the book of Mark. But Matthew's gospel opens with it, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. So this title, the Son of David, it's only used twice in Mark. And the other time it's used of Jesus uh, about himself. Son of David points to Jesus as the royal Messiah and the line of David. It fulfills the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 about the eternal reign of David's line. He acts as the one who brings the rule of God to earth, a rule characterized by salvation and blessing. And Bartimaeus believes Jesus is this Messiah, and he's shouting it. And it was probably dangerous to do so if the Romans heard him, but he didn't care. He was sure Jesus could heal him. This blind man had excellent sight. Someone bluntly once asked the blind Helen Keller, isn't it terrible to be blind? To which she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. So it was with Bartimaeus. Sometimes blindness has its own benefits. He has a lot of time to think without visual distractions, time to develop the interior life and a contemplative spirit and learn how to see with the heart. He considered Christ and came to a biblical view of him, realizing his own darkness and need and who Jesus was. Furthermore, we see some rather amazing persistence. Look at verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. <coughs> He's rejected this rebuke from the crowd. He's shouting again and again, Son of David, have mercy on me. The people around him, they try to silence him. You're making a scene. I'm guessing that some ridiculed him. Shut up, beggar. But no way does he stop. Son of David, have mercy on me. Quiet, beggar. Son of David, have mercy on me. Will someone please make him be quiet? Son of David, have mercy on me. He's beyond the control of the crowd. Understanding something of who Jesus was and his own personal need, he keeps saying this over and over and over like a little kid. Now, only a few verses earlier, Jesus has said, Mark 10, 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And Bartimaeus comes to Jesus like a child who's well aware of his helplessness and his dependence. And his sense of urgency reveals what should be in our souls. This is the meaning of Jesus' words in Luke 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. 
Spiritual blessings belong to those who go for it. In the Old Testament, the Lord instructed his people back in Jeremiah 29. You've heard this before. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In the New Testament, Jesus says, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Spiritual blessings don't go to the half-hearted, but to those who want them above all else. Bartimaeus was helpless, but he went for it, and Christ heard him and responded. And then he asked him a key question, a key question, verses 49 to 51. You see, Jesus' final stop is Jerusalem and the cross, just 17 miles away. But he makes time for this poor blind beggar. Notice whatever the crowd was saying, whatever they were calling out, didn't stop him. But hearing the cry of faith did, starting at verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. On the one hand, nothing could have stopped Christ from finishing his mission. No opposition, no pleading by his loving but ignorant friends, no protesting Peter, but the humble cry of this needy man, son of David, have mercy on me, stops him cold. And for a brief moment in time, a blind man had the undivided attention of God. What a window into the heart of God. Today he's doing in a far more exalted fashion the things he did here on earth. Now in heaven he hears uh, constant hosannas from the heavenly host and uh, from the church uh, universal. He is instantly attentive to all our cries, even when a million of us are crying out to him at the same time. Are you hurting? Do you feel helpless? You need to understand that your cry is music to his ears. Think about this scene when Jesus responds to him and asks him this question, what do you want me to do for you? It would make a great painting. Face to face, Jesus with the most penetrating eyes ever and the sightless sockets of Bartimaeus framed by an expression of ultimate expectation. This is the way to come to Jesus. And to make sure we get it, he says something first. Now, if you remember to last week, and remember back to verse 36, Jesus asked the exact same question of James and John. What do you want me to do for you? If you remember, how did they answer? We want power. We want importance. We want influence. And now he asked Bartimaeus the exact same question in verse 51. What is it that Bartimaeus wants? Not power mercy not influence he just wants to see he casts himself on the mercy of the lord that's what the disciples haven't grasped yet following jesus begins here recognizing the truth that we're all actually bartimaeus helpless dependent blind and in need of mercy a life of following jesus starts here 
and never really moves on from here. It's a life that is always crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Now think about that. That's a rhetorical question if I've ever heard one. What does Jesus think that he wants? Sunglasses? You know better than that. Jesus just wants to hear him say it. Hear him say exactly what he wants. Hear him say exactly what he believes. Can you imagine being in that position? I have to ask myself, what would I do if this happened to me if a blind beggar stepped forward asking for mercy? I mean, I could pray for him. I could ask God to give him grace in an obviously difficult situation. And if it were his will to relieve his suffering, I might discuss various uh, social services with him or tell him how our church could help out. But the one thing I can't imagine doing is just to casually ask him, what do you want me to do for you? Because what he wants, I can't do. But he didn't ask me. He asked Jesus, the one person who can do what he wants. Now, one of the reasons we don't often draw near to Jesus, we don't often cry out to him in prayer, is that we too easily forget what he's able to do. But Bartimaeus knew what he could do. Lord, I want out of the dungeon, out of the darkness. I want out of the shackles of these blind eyes. I want out of this prison. I want to be free. I want to see. Lord, I want to get off the side of the road. I want to walk the streets of Jericho without running into its walls. I want to look in the shops. I want to find my way to the synagogue. I want to see. Lord, I want to use my hands for something besides feeling my way in the dark. I want to make things. I want to fix my own meals. I want to read the Torah. I want to see. Lord, I want to look into the eyes of a friend. I want to wave at somebody across the street. I want to smile at children and pat their heads and wish them well. I want to love and I want to laugh. I want to live. I want to see. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Our Lord wanted this man to articulate his heart's desire so he could strengthen his faith. Bartimaeus knew exactly what he wanted. When we know our true needs and we can tell them to Jesus, then amazing grace flows forth. In an instant, Jesus knows everything that those words, Rabbi, let me recover my sight, means to this man. And so the king gives him what he asks. He heals the blind beggar and in return receives a key response. Verse 52, a key response. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Imagine what this was like for Bartimaeus. He's blind at the beginning of Christ's touch, seeing at the end of it. No surgery, no bandages, no adjustment, boom, sight. Sunshine floods his eyes. He sees the blue sky, clouds in full sail, birds flying off the rooftops. He sees Jericho hung with palm trees, the hills of Moab off in the distance. He sees people for the first time. He sees the gawking crowd. But the thing he saw first was the face of Jesus. Of this the great preacher Clarence McCartney once said, 
And for you and me, that too will be the greatest of all sights. When we awake from the dream men call life, when we put off the image of the earth and break the bonds of time and mortality, when the scales of time and sense have fallen from our eyes and the garment of corruption has been put off, and when this mortality is put on immortality and this corruption has put on incorruption and we awaken in that everlasting morning, that will be the sight that will stir us and hold us. It's a lot to see for a blind man. <coughs> now Christ had responded to Bartimaeus' understanding of his own darkness, matched with his penetrating assessment of who Christ is. But in the final analysis, the miracle is all of Christ. Jesus calls him when he responds. The Savior calls forth his faith. That's what happens. Very interestingly, Bartimaeus is the only person that Jesus heals who's given a name. He's the only person named. Mark wants us to pay attention to Bartimaeus. He's being held up here as a, uh, a model, someone to learn from, and also a contrast. He's a model disciple in contrast to the other disciples, the failures of those who have been following Jesus so far. When Bartimaeus is face to face with Jesus, he calls him rabbi in our text. Actually, the word is rabboni. It's an intensification of rabbi. It's only used one other time in the Gospels by Mary on the morning of the resurrection and her response to the risen Christ. It's an extraordinary statement of personal commitment and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Bartimaeus calls Jesus, Rabboni. And so when Jesus sends him on his way, Bartimaeus discovers that his way and Jesus' way are now the same way. Before their paths diverged, but now that Jesus has showed up and shown mercy and become his Lord, he can go in no other direction than to follow Christ. Some scholars say that Mark preserves Bartimaeus' name because he became a stalwart in the early church. He followed Jesus, witnessed the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the horror of the crucifixion, the joy of the resurrection. Talk about getting an eyeful. Sight brings him more than he could have ever imagined. Now what were the disciples supposed to learn from this event? You see, this is the last miracle presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what we find here is the theme that comes through in all the miracle accounts, namely the great reversal that takes place through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is fond of saying the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a teaching that occurs five times in the Gospels, including in this chapter. And as always, it's the poor, the afflicted, the blind who see Jesus for what he is who believed what was promised of him in the scriptures and what was revealed by his miracles. Not the religious leaders, not even the disciples, but those who were, like little children, helplessly dependent. This is an incredible picture of the contrast he has in mind. A great reversal empowered by the cross and the empty tomb. Those who trust in Christ, though lowly and weak and afflicted, end up blessed. 
But those who don't put their faith in Christ, however rich, powerful, exalted they are in the world, will end up poor and sorry and rejected by God, if not in this world, then in the next. The miracles are far more than mere random acts of kindness on the part of Jesus. They show us a lot more than Jesus just being a good guy. They're an advertisement. They're an advanced viewing, so to speak, of the entire scope of his redeeming work. They direct us to him as the one with divine power who's willing and able to save sinners. They offer our minds and our hearts a foretaste, a, a sneak preview of what it will be like when death is finally put away, Satan is disarmed, when sin and sickness are, are no more, and when God wipes away every tear from the eyes of his people. To that end, the various afflicted people in the miracle accounts represent what the reign of sin and Satan means for a fallen humanity. It's a portrait gallery of sin and its effects. Leprosy shows sin's corrupting power and condemning presence. The lame show sin's debilitating power. The dead proclaim the wages of sin. The demon-possessed show the destructive domination that's always the result of our bondage to sin and Satan. But in all the miracles, there's one kind of illness central to the Bible's depiction of sin's effect on people, and that's blindness. Perhaps Mark saves this for last, passing by other examples for the sake of emphasis. So important is this portrait for our understanding of what it means to be lost in sin. In the Bible, sight is synonymous with belief. Jesus says that in his famous words to Nicodemus in the beginning of John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Receiving the gift of faith by the grace of God may be best represented by the classic hymn, Amazing Grace, which, as you know, says, I was blind, but now I see. That's the difference between Christians and others. It's not that Christians are spiritually superior or more spiritually attuned or more spiritually willing, but that by God's grace, He's opened our once blind eyes. And therefore, when we encounter other people who are oblivious to the things of God, unconcerned with spiritual realities, our response should not be one of contempt, but one of compassion. And our compassion should spur us on to greater zeal for the gospel, which is the light that God's given us for the opening of eyes that are blind. When we come to Christ in faith, this great reversal is applied to us. We who are guilty receive the righteousness of him who bought us with his blood. We who have been rebels against God are adopted as beloved children. We who have sinned are forgiven because Jesus paid our debt. We who are weak receive the power of Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We who are dead in sin are made alive in Christ. We who are blind are made to see. To sum up, what are we to learn from the blind sight, the marvelous spiritual vision of this blind man? First, we have to see our need. Bartimaeus knew he was blind. Let me recover my sight. Are you blind to your sin, to your need of Christ? 2 Corinthians 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Perhaps you're a Christian, but your sin has cauterized your eyes to what Christ is asking you. Whatever your situation, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart. Let me recover my sight. Second, once you see your need, you need to see who Jesus is. He is the Son of David, the awesome, glorious, sovereign Lord whom all peoples and all nations will worship and whose kingdom and dominion will never end. He is the Deliverer who will fulfill everything King David foreshadowed. He is the Savior, the Messiah, Christ the King. You need to see Jesus. And then third, you need to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Seeing your need, seeing who Jesus really is, we now cry out in faith, have mercy on me. Do you see your need? Do you see Jesus? Have you called out to him? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Because this story is not so much about the healing of a blind man as it is about sinners in need of a Savior. To be people who are able to see the one who can forgive sins people like us. So what will you do? What will any of us do? Because that's what this passage is all about, to see or not to see. How are you going to have it? When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? What will you say? I mean, you can stay where you are. You can sit in your familiar dark where all the edges are rounded off so you don't hurt yourself, where you only need to concern yourself with uh, what's already within your reach. You know, after all, you don't want to make a spectacle of yourself crying out to this Jesus person. Who knows, it probably won't work anyway. No sense getting your hopes up. No sense thinking of yourself as a person who can really see. Stay with what you know. Or you can cry out. You can spring up and you can ask for your heart's desire. Damn the torpedoes. Full speed ahead. Good riddance to the fear that keeps you in the dark. Are you willing to see or not? And if you're willing, are you willing to see everything that is? The good along with the awful, the beautiful along with the monstrance, in yourself, in everyone you meet, and in the world around you? Are you willing to get used to a new way of seeing, bruising your shins, learning your way around the obstacles, fighting through the newness of it all? Are you willing to bruise your heart? Because you'll be stumbling into that mystery that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And if going your own way doesn't look so appealing anymore, then try going another way, following him. His way leads to Jerusalem, and it's all uphill. It's through a garden and past a cross and through a narrow gate leading to an empty tomb. And at the end, you will be standing face to face with him. What do you want me to do for you? Are you willing to see or not? And all those who would see said, Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, 
Once again, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that in this passage we see your son. Open our eyes that we might not be blind to our sin, but able to see our Savior. Help us to cry out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as we cry out, would you lavish grace upon grace upon us that a new life following Jesus on his way might more become our way. Lord, help us see him as you want us to see him, as humble, as obedient, as glorious, as beloved by you. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let us see that. Amen and amen. Thank you.